is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show. And this next story is one of our favorites. Much of what America and the world knows about Doc Holliday comes from movies and TV. Victor Mature played Doc in John Ford's My Darling Clementine in 1946. Kirk Douglas played him in 1957's Gunfight at the OK Corral. In 1993, Val Kilmer played Doc Holliday in Tombstone, my wife's favorite. And a year later, Dennis Quaid in Wyatt Earp simply became Doc Holliday. But historians agree no movie portrayal has done real justice to his story. Roger McGrath is the author of Gunfighters, Hollywood, and Vigilantes, Violence on the Frontier, a U.S. Marine and former history professor at UCLA. He's a regular contributor for us here at Our American Stories. Here's McGrath with the story of Doc Holliday. Doc Holliday was not only one of the most colorful characters in the Old West, but also one of the most feared. He acquired the nickname of Doc, honestly, earning a degree in dentistry and practicing in several towns. However, he eventually spent nearly all his time as a professional gambler and occasionally as a gunfighter. He had a vicious temper and feared no man, perhaps because tuberculosis had already given him a death sentence. Doc Holliday is born John Henry Holliday in 1851 in Griffin, Georgia, about 40 miles south of Atlanta. His parents are of South Carolina pioneer stock of Scotch-Irish and English ancestry. Doc's father, Henry Holliday, is an attorney who fights the Indians in 1838, the Mexicans in 1846, and the Yankees in 1861 rising to the rank of major in the Civil War before being forced by illness to resign his commission. Doc has a comfortable middle-class childhood and receives a good education. His mother, Alice, is a classic Southern belle. She teaches him manners and etiquette, while his father regales him with war stories and tales of survival. Doc is only nine years old when the Civil War erupts in 1861. Three years later, the family flees General Sherman's march to the sea and moves farther south to Valdosta, where Doc is enrolled in the Valdosta Institute and studies all the subjects common to classical education, including rhetoric, history, and Latin. He wishes that instead of studying, he was fighting the Yankees. Nonetheless, Doc is a good student and receives an excellent education considering the Civil War, which by the fall of 1864 is ravaging Georgia. Here's Doc Holliday biographer Gary Roberts. He was popular. He was good on the dance floor. He learned all the proper social graces. Uh, He was polite. And he seems to have gotten along well with most people. But he also had an ornery side. They tell a story that uh, a boy challenged him to a duel. Now, all of the friends, the people of, of these two boys, assumed it would be, was going to be a fake duel. They were going to load pistols with powder and shoot powder at each other, and it was just going to be a make-believe duel. But John Henry, they said, showed up with a loaded revolver and said he would use his own gun for the duel. Well, needless to say, the other boy backed down very quickly, so he had a streak in him. In September 1866, after two years of painful suffering, Doc's mother dies of tuberculosis, known then as consumption. 
Here's Old West historian Jeff Morey and Victoria Wilcox, author of Southern Sun, the Saga of Doc Holliday. They called it consumption because it sort of consumed you. It was very long, slow disease, and it would really eat you away from the inside out. And the classic way to die of consumption was really to suffocate. From 1800 to 1870, one out of five deaths in America was attributed to consumption. He's always been close to his mother, and her death comes as a great blow. His bad temper, which he inherited from his father, worsens. The blonde-haired, blue-eyed, boyish-looking 15-year-old John Henry Holliday is not physically imposing. But as other boys learn, he is no one to trifle with. In 1870, Doc is off to the Pennsylvania College of Dental Surgery, considered one of the best dental schools in the nation. At just 20 years of age, Doc graduates in 1872, near the top of his class, and begins practicing in Atlanta during the summer. Here's Professor Arnett Gaston and Victoria Wilcox. He graduates so early in age that it was difficult for him to set up practice because he wasn't old enough yet. A clear testimony to his achievement, his critical thinking skills, and he was good. Doc Holliday was the epitome of a Southern gentleman, which meant that he was mannerly and likely also hot-tempered, all those things that go along with living in the South during the Civil War and Reconstruction. There's a story that a gold crown he made for a girl's molar was still in place when she died at the age of 102 in 1967. Here's Old West historian Stephen Shaw. He came home, he opened up his own practice with another gentleman. Here's a young man, 21, 22 years of age, uh, six foot tall or almost, a doctor, very good looking according to the records, a good catch for any woman. Doc would have married a genteel woman and started a family. At night, he would sit by the parlor fire in his comfortable Georgia home, and he would die in old age, surrounded by loved ones. <laughs> Instead, Doc Holliday starts coughing. Doc begins to rapidly lose weight, has night fevers, weakness, and his coughing up of blood begins to interfere with his practice. He goes to a doctor and is found to have, like his mother, tuberculosis, at the time a fatal disease. The cause isn't known and there is no cure. He is given six months to live. However, he is told that the drier climate of the American West might prolong his life by as much as two years. Rather than die bedridden, Doc begins packing. The family is upset. No one more than his cousin, Maddie Holliday, a beautiful blonde who has had a crush on Doc for years. She will correspond with Doc and pine for him. The biggest problem, if this is the case, was that while first cousins marrying was very common in 19th century life, it was not common among Catholics, and she was Catholic. And when we come back, we'll continue with the story of Doc Holliday here on Our American Stories. For more, go to ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for our weekly newsletter.
we continue here on Our American Stories and the story of Doc Holliday, let's return to Roger McGrath. Maddie eventually enters the Sisters of Mary Convent in Savannah. Doc Holliday boards a train for Dallas, Texas to, as they say, die with his boots on. Here's entrepreneur and Old West collector Bill Koch. He knew that he had a short life and then he would think that he might as well be a little more aggressive or a little more of a wiseacre than he would normally. And if he got killed, he'd think of it and say, well, and be less painful than being shot with a bullet than it would be to die from consumption. But first, Doc opens a dental practice. Although he does excellent dental work, his coughing fits again cause his practice to decline. More and more, Doc turns to gambling for income and has surprising success. He has a memory for cards dealt, can quickly calculate odds, and can handle a deck with extraordinary dexterity. He also possesses an excellent poker face. The knowledge of his imminent death make it easy for him to hide his emotions and draw the next card, or when necessary, draw his gun. On New Year's Day, 1875, Doc gets into his first documented shootout. It's with the proprietor of a saloon, Charles Austin, who goes by the nickname Champagne Charlie for the popular song of the time. The song is lighthearted, and so is the report in the Dallas newspaper. Dr. Holliday and Mr. Austin, a saloonkeeper, relieve the monotony of the noise of firecrackers by taking a couple of shots at each other yesterday afternoon. The cheerful note of the peaceful six-shooter is heard once more among us. No one is hit and all is forgiven. Doc decides it's a good time to leave the state and pursue the roving life of a gambler, chasing the next big pot from boomtown to boomtown across the West. He arrives in Denver during the summer of 1875 and goes to work as a faro dealer at John Babb's saloon. It's not long before he gets into a close quarters fight with Bud Ryan. Both men draw knives and slash away. Both are wounded, Ryan seriously. On the 4th of July, 1877, in Breckenridge, Texas, Doc gets into a fight with another gambler, Henry Kahn. Here again is Victoria Wilcox. And according to this story, Holiday pulled a cane and hit him, and Can pulled a gun and shot Holiday. We don't know which man was in the right or the wrong. We don't even know what they were fighting about or whether they were both just drunk and disorderly. But the newspaper went on to say that Holiday had been killed and Can disappeared from town. We know the report is at least a little bit inaccurate because, of course, Holiday was still alive and he actually returned back to Dallas. Doc slowly recovers and, when healthy, moves to Fort Griffin, Texas to deal cards at pugilist John Shaughnessy's saloon. While in Fort Griffin, he meets and falls for Mary Catherine Haroni, a curvaceous 26-year-old better known as Big Nose Kate. Well, Kate doesn't actually have a big nose, but her nickname comes from her nosy nature. Hungarian-born, Kate works as a dance hall girl and occasionally as a prostitute. 
She is described as highly intelligent, tough, stubborn, and fearless. It's also at Fort Griffin, where Doc meets a man who will change his life from Dennis and Gambler to legend. 30-year-old Wyatt Earp is serving as a deputy U.S. Marshal and has come down from Dodge City, Kansas, looking for an outlaw. Doc and Wyatt hit it off immediately. It's the start of the Wild West's most famous friendship. One evening in 1878, while in Fort Griffin, Doc is arrested for killing a bully during a card game. Although it is done in self-defense, Doc is jailed and a lynch mob begins to form outside. But Doc has an ally. Kate intervenes, setting fire to a barn in the center of town. While everybody runs to put out the fire, she puts a gun on the jailer and tells him to open the door. Well, boys. Doc and Kate escape north it's been fun. to the biggest boom town of them all, Dodge City, also known as Hell on the Plains, and joins up with Wyatt, who is working as the assistant city marshal. Here's Old West historian, Andrew Nelson. Dodge City of the 1870s was one of the most notorious of frontier towns. It was a town with no law, where buffalo hunters, soldiers, vagrants made hay of the town every night. Doc establishes a dental practice, but spends more of his time gambling than drilling and filling teeth. He's dealing cards at the Long Branch Saloon when into the saloon come a half dozen wild characters, a ragtag gang of cattle rustlers, stagecoach bandits, and thuggish outlaws led by Ed Morrison, a man who has been humiliated by Wyatt in Wichita several years earlier and has been itching to get even. They begin shooting their guns into the air and harassing customers. Hearing the gunfire, Wyatt runs into the Long Branch only to find six deadly characters with their guns leveled at him. Morrison warns him, Pray and jerk your gun. Your time has come, Herb. Wyatt reckons he's dead, but Doc steps up behind Morrison, puts a gun to the outlaw's head, and tells him and his boys to drop their guns. Do what he says, boys. They comply. Wyatt says Doc saved his life that day, and Wyatt never forgets what Doc has done for him. When word comes of a silver strike at Tombstone in Arizona Territory, several of Dodge City's gamblers and gunslingers head west. Doc travels with Kate. Along the way, they spend some time in Las Vegas, New Mexico, where Doc decides to open his own saloon. Here's Victoria Wilcox. Of course, Doc was in trouble with the law again because Las Vegas had laws just like all western towns did against operating gambling games in houses of spiritous liquors. So he just did what other businessmen did and paid the fines and went right on operating his gambling games. He also had arrests for carrying a deadly weapon, which was also part of business in a saloon because a saloon owner was expected to police his own business and had to be armed to protect his patrons from violence. One of the patrons is former Army Scout Mike Gordon. After a dispute, Gordon steps out into the street and fires a couple of rounds into the saloon. Gun in hand, Doc comes running outside and drills Gordon. He's mortally wounded and dies the next day. 
By September 1880, Doc arrives in the violent boom town of Tombstone, Arizona, joining the Earps in what is a factional fight to control the town. The heart of the Tombstone story has to do with the growing animosity between the Earp faction and what's called the Cowboy faction. The Cowboys run a lucrative operation, rustling cattle and robbing stagecoaches. They're all handy with guns, including William Brocious, better known as Curly Bill, who shoots to death Tombstone City Marshal Fred White. Johnny Ringo and Frank Stilwell are also members of the Cowboy faction, with reputations for fast and fancy shooting. Leading the rustling are Old Man Clanton and three of his sons, Ike, Finn, and Billy, and their close friends, the McLowry brothers, Tom and Frank. The Cowboy faction has Cochise County Sheriff Johnny Bean, County Supervisor Mike Joyce, and the publisher of the Daily Nugget, Harry Woods, on its side. The Earp faction consists of the five Earp brothers, Wyatt, Virgil, Morgan, James, and Warren, and Doc Holliday, Judge Wells Spicer, Tombstone mayor and publisher of the Tombstone epitaph, John Clum, and several prominent businessmen. Virgil Earp is both a deputy U.S. Marshal and the city marshal of Tombstone. The Earp faction could be called the law and order faction, but the Earps and associates are as much concerned about their business interests and who controls the town as about law and order. And you've been listening to Roger McGrath telling the real story of Doc Holliday. And by the way, he's doing his best to synthesize many of the stories that are out there, but in a far greater depth and detail than we ever experience while just watching a movie or watching a TV version of the story. And when we continue, the rest of the remarkable story of the life of Doc Holliday here on Our American Stories. Get more at ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for our weekly newsletter. Continue with the story of Doc Holliday here on Our American Stories, and we return to Roger McGrath. Various members of the cowboy faction are fond of drinking in tombstone saloons, firing their guns, and generally raising hell. They've also been heard threatening to kill the herbs in Holiday. Virgil gets the city council to pass an ordinance stating that upon arrival in Tombstone, cowboys must deposit their guns at various locations in the city. The countdown to the most famous gunfight in Western history begins in a bar. Several of the cowboys arrive in town on October 25, 1881 and begin drinking and gambling. 
Doc Holliday, who's also drinking heavily, gets in an argument with Ike Clanton in the Alhambra Saloon. Four turns deadly, others interfere, and Wyatt Earp walks Doc to his quarters and tells him to sleep it off. Here again is Gary Roberts. The next morning, after a peculiar thing happened, and that is that Ike Clanton and, and Virgil Earp stayed up most of the night playing cards with each other in the same card game. But the next morning, before Virgil or anybody else had gotten up, Ike Clanton is already walking the streets looking for the Earp brothers. Ike stays in the saloons and around mid-morning retrieves his guns from the West End Corral where he had deposited them. Ike's still drinking and now he's threatening to kill Holiday when he sees him. Upon hearing this, Doc crawls out of bed, sharpens his fatalistic wit and cracks, if God lets me live long enough to get my clothes on, he shall see me. Virgil is alerted and taking Morgan Earp, his deputy, with him. They find Ike with a revolver on his hip and a Winchester in his hand. Morgan confronts Ike while Virgil approaches from behind. With the drunken Ike focusing on Morgan, Virgil knocks him senseless using a revolver as a club. Morgan and Virgil disarm Ike and drag him to the courthouse where he's fined $25 for violating the city ordinance. He's told he can retrieve his guns when he is leaving town. Here's Jeff Morey. Virgil would have been justified in killing that client. And I think it's a mistake that uh, the Earps make. The, they're, they're too lenient with Ike. Basically, what they do all morning long is allow Ike to build a head of steam. He gets angrier and angrier. What's bizarre about it is, it seems the more you ignore this fellow, the angrier he gets. They keep thinking he's going to finally drink enough, go to sleep, and he'll be out of their hair. And it never happens. While all this is going on, Wyatt Earp pistol whips Tom McLowry and leaves him bleeding in the street. Early afternoon, finds Ike Clanton and Tom McLowry in a doctor's office getting their head wounds stitched. At the same time, Billy Clanton and Frank McLowry ride into town and stop at the Grand Hotel. They learn of the beatings of their brothers and don't deposit their guns. Within minutes, they join up with their wounded and unarmed brothers on Fremont Street, not far from the O.K. Corral. The day is cold and windy. There's a dusting of snow in places. Virgil Earp gathers his forces, Wyatt and Morgan Earp, but not Doc. Where are you going, says Doc. We're going to make a fight, replies Wyatt. Well, you're not going to leave me out of it, are you? This is none of your affair. That is a hell of a thing for you to say to me. It's gonna be a tough one. Tough ones are the kind I like. Here's Old West historian and gunfighter Drew Gomber. Accompanying the Earps down to the OK Corral was a big deal because, you know, he didn't have to go, which uh, would indicate loyalty in the extreme. They risk your life for, for your friend. All are armed with revolvers, but Virgil gives his ace-in-the-hole Doc Holliday a Wells Fargo 10-gauge double-barreled shotgun to hide under his overcoat. He also deputizes right. Doc. Go to it, boys. 
Here's Old West historian Tom Ross. Virgil had other deputies. He doesn't take those deputies. He takes his brothers, Wyatt and Morgan. And then he drags along Doc Holliday. This is like bringing a match to a party full of gas cans. The four lawmen walk shoulder to shoulder down the center of Fremont Street and find the cowboys in a small 15-foot-wide, dusty, vacant lot next to Fly's photography studio. Here again is Drew Gomber. This is only a 15-foot-wide alley that contained nine men and two horses. They were so close that when they initially entered the alley, Doc took his shotgun and pressed it right into Tom McClowry's belly. Then he took a few steps back. So these guys, it was up close and personal for everybody. Virgil calls for Billy Clanton and Frank McClowry, the only two cowboys armed, to surrender their guns. They refuse. What happens next is a matter of great debate. Wider probably fires first, hitting Frank McLowry in the stomach. Billy Clanton fires at nearly the same time. Unarmed Tom McLowry tries to take cover behind a horse and reach for a rifle in a scabbard on the horse, but Doc Holliday steps to the side and lets both barrels of the shotgun roar. Tom McLowry staggers into the street and collapses. Unarmed Ike Clanton takes off running. Meanwhile, Virgil Earp fires around and hits Billy Clanton in his gun hand. Billy keenly switches his gun to his other hand and fires, drilling Virgil in the leg. Morgan Earp fires around and hits Billy in the chest. Despite suffering several wounds, Billy Clanton and Frank McLowry continue firing. Morgan Earp is hit in the shoulder and Doc Holliday in the hip. Wyatt Earp is untouched. Doc finds himself looking down the barrel of Frank McLowry's pistol. McLowry says, I've got you now. Doc's calm response is characteristic. Blaze away, you're a daisy if you do. McLowry fires and a bullet rips through Doc's coat. Doc fires and a bullet rips through McLowry's head killing him instantly. Both Billy Clanton and Tom McLowry are barely clinging to life. They're carried into a nearby house and within minutes are dead. Analysis of Doc's movements at the OK Corral show him to be a master in tactical combat. Here again is Jeff Moray. His job is to protect the flank, not to let the cowboys out a lot so that they can flank the Earp brothers. What's peculiar about Doc's performance in the gunfight is how much walking he does. He traverses more ground than any other participant. It takes just 30 shots and 30 seconds of gunfighting at the OK Corral to write another chapter in American history. When the gun smoke clears, three cowboys are dead. Here again is Victoria Wilcox. The story of the gunfight went out across the telegraph wires and hit all the newspapers in America and made instant celebrities of all the participants. In a country that was enamored with all things Wild West, this was the most iconic Western battle of them all. The event is highly controversial in Tombstone, and the Earp brothers and Doc Holliday are put through a month-long hearing before Judge Wells Spicer. Testimony from witnesses is wildly contradictory. The tombstone epitaph argues the herbs and holiday were only doing their duty as lawmen. The Daily Nugget argues they be tried for murder. 
Judge Spicer finally rules there is not enough evidence to proceed with the murder trial. Therefore, this court is adjourned. And when we come back, we're going to continue with a remarkable story of Doc Holliday, the full story of Doc Holliday. And you're hearing from some of the best Western historians in the country, and we love bringing you these stories of the American West. And we've brought you dozens by now, including the ultimate Western story, which was, of course, the Lewis and Clark story. And we've had dozens and dozens of stories about the most epic road trip ever. More on the life of Doc Holliday here on Our American Stories. For more, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and sign up for the podcast. And we continue here with Our American Stories and the story of Doc Holliday. We last heard from Judge Spicer, who ruled that there was not enough evidence to proceed with a murder trial against the Earps or Doc Holliday. Let's pick up from there with Roger McGrath. Therefore, this court is adjourned. The Cowboys are incensed by the failure to proceed with the trial. They issue a public death threat to Judge Spicer in the Daily Nugget. The real problem is the town has been so polarized that there's no appeasing the losing side. The Cowboys aren't interested in PR. They're interested in revenge. Ike Clanton wants to get the men who killed his brother. And they feel the whole system has let them down. Word spreads through Tombstone that the Earps and Doc Holliday are targeted for death. Late on a December night, Virgil Earp steps out of the Oriental Saloon and into the blast of a shotgun. The buckshot from the unseen assassin shreds his left arm and rips into his left leg. Miraculously, Virgil survives, but his left arm is rendered useless for the rest of his life. Three months later, in March 1882, Morgan Earp is shot while playing a game of billiards. The shot comes through an open window of the billiard parlor and drills Morgan in the stomach. He lingers for an hour and dies in Wyatt's arms. For Wyatt Earp, the killing of Morgan was a profoundly upsetting incident. From now on, he will be a law unto himself. The question over the years is, was he, a, was he a force for justice, or was he an expression of the law gone wrong? Uh, and that's a difficult question to answer. But he will be the judge, the jury, and the uh, executioner. Wyatt Earp is now a deputy U.S. Marshal, and with Doc Holliday's encouragement, decides it's time to go on the offensive. The first order of business, though, is to get Virgil and his wife safely out of town. Wyatt deputizes Doc and Warren Earp and two others, Sherman McMaster and Turkey Creek Jack Johnson, to escort Virgil and his wife to the train station in Tucson. At the station, they spot Frank Stillwell. The man has been bragging that he fired the fatal shot into Morgan Earp's stomach. Stillwell is hiding behind a railroad car as the men close in on him. Wyatt lets a shotgun roar, and Doc opens up with a revolver. 
How many others fire is not known, but Stillwell's body is later found riddled with buckshot and bullets. One of the witnesses says he'd never seen a man who'd been more badly shot up. And uh, from now on, there's no turning back from Wyatt Earp. Uh, this is a, a major change in his career. He still views himself, I believe, as bringing justice, but he clearly realizes he's now outside the confines of the law. This was the beginning of, of real trouble for the Earps. Uh, and it made it clear that Wyatt was interested in more than just uh, arresting people. This Where had become he? personal. A Tucson Justice of the Peace issues arrest warrants for Wyatt and Doc and the others. But by the time he does, they are long gone and armed to the teeth to hunt down the killers of Morgan and the attempted assassin of Virgil. Joined by Texas Jack Vermillion, they head for the ranch of Pete Spence, one of the leaders of the cowboy faction. Spence is not there, but they find one of his hands, Indian Charlie Cruz, Indian Charlie. and dispense some Western justice upon him. What becomes known as the Vendetta Ride is now at full gallop. Wyatt Earp's Vendetta Ride can be looked at as almost an Old Testament type story. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And if you really think about that, what that type of approach fosters is the idea of a natural law. You have the natural law and you have the civil law. And those who support Wyatt Earp would say he was following the natural law in the course of actions he took after the killing of Morgan. Wyatt Earp and Doc Holliday and the other Vendetta Riders next surprised Curly Bill and eight other cowboys at Iron Springs, about 30 miles northwest of Tombstone. Earp lets loose with a shotgun, nearly cutting Curly Bill in half. The other cowboys return fire, and the Vendetta Riders are forced to retreat. Texas Jack Vermillion has his horse shot from under him, but Doc Holliday dashes back through heavy fire to rescue his fallen comrade. Doc later says, Our escape was miraculous. The shots cut our clothes and saddles and killed one horse but did not hit us. I think we would have been killed if God Almighty wasn't on our side. After the Curly Bill episode, the Earp Posse decides it's time to leave Arizona because of the pressure of the posses that are chasing them. Uh, with the assistance probably of two governors, Wells Fargo and company, maybe the Santa Fe Railroad, and the U.S. Marshal's Office, they uh, go to Albuquerque and from there into Colorado. At Pueblo, Colorado, they part company. Wyatt going to Gunnison and Doc to Denver. Doc is arrested in Denver in May 1882 on the Arizona warrant for the murder of Frank Stilwell. All of a sudden, Doc has support coming out of the woodwork. There is a Bat Masterson comes to town and begins to argue for him. There's a newspaper man named E.D. Cowan who is working on his behalf. So all of these people are saying to the governor, don't send him back. And so what happens is that the governor of Colorado looks over the papers and says, there is a, already a charge against 
Doc Holliday in Pueblo, and we can't extradite him to another state when there is an outstanding warrant against him here in Colorado. By the way, that's called now in Colorado and other places, holidaying, filing charges of one crime to prevent applying warrants for another crime. Doc returns to gambling to support himself, but tuberculosis is ravaging his body, and his once vaunted skills are beginning to deteriorate. He bounces from town to town, Denver, Pueblo, Leadville. In a Leadville saloon, in March 1885, Doc is in his last shooting scrape. When Billy Allen tries to collect the debt Doc owes him and threatens the frail consumptive, Doc shoots Allen. Doc is arrested and put on trial, but a jury finds him not guilty on the grounds of self-defense. Doc's last days are spent in the health resort of Glenwood Springs. He moves there in May 1887 and begins soaking in the hot springs and inhaling the sulfurous vapors. Here again is Bill Koch. Why would Doc go to a springs that had a lot of sulfur in it? I mean, that just hastens his death. And he was medically trained, but it shows how primitive medicine was in those days. Over the years, he has never stopped corresponding with his cousin, Maddie Holliday. Now his letter writing increases. She urges him to turn to God. He seeks out the local priest, Father Edward Downey, and it's not long before the Irish cleric baptizes Doc in the Catholic faith. By the fall of 1887, Doc Holliday is bedridden. After all his narrow escapes, he finds it ironic that he won't die with his boots on. On the morning, of November 8, he calls for a nurse to bring him a jig or a whiskey. Doc sits up in his bed and throws back the shot. He looks at his bare feet. This is funny, he says, and then falls back onto the bed and dies. John Henry Holliday is but 36 years old. Here's Gary Roberts and Victoria Wilcox. If you think about it, and you go to see movies about uh, all of this. The character who wins in the movies every time, who puts Wyatt Earp in the shadows, although he's supposed to be the hero, you forget about Wyatt Earp and you, and you concentrate on Doc Holliday. He'd done more in 36 years than most men ever dream of doing. He traveled across the country and seen history being made, and he had become part of American history. Wyatt Earp later says of him, Doc was a dentist whom necessity had made a gambler, a gentleman whom disease had made a frontier vagabond, a philosopher whom life had made a caustic wit, a long, lean, ash-blonde fellow, nearly dead with consumption, and at the same time, the most skillful gambler and the nerviest, speediest, and deadliest man with a six-gun I ever knew. And great work as always to Greg Hengler and thanks as always to Roger McGrath, who's our regular contributor for all things American West. And, you know, it's interesting. Reality, it's always, in the end, more compelling than fiction. And we try to get out of the way and deal with and talk to 
the best historians we can on any number of subjects relating to this nation's great history. It's a fundamental part of our mission here at Our American Stories is to tell the story of America to Americans. And again, thanks to all the folks who contributed and helped, and we'd love to hear your ideas about stories about the American West. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. The story of John Henry Holiday, Doc Holiday, not an ordinary dentist, classically trained, great wit, a great mind. In the end, with little left to live for, he decides to live a life as full as he can, and he does. The legend, the reality, the story of Doc Holliday here on Our American Story. Habib and this is Our American Stories and we love to bring you stories about music, sports, history, work, marriage and every sphere of American life. We tell you good stories, redeeming stories, uplifting stories and tough stories too. And today we hear from Jeff Katz. He's a radio host in Richmond, Virginia and he's also a columnist for the Boston Herald. And here he shares his deeply personal story about his teenage daughter, Julia, who has what doctors call global developmental delays and disabilities. And all of that means is that she functions physically and mentally at the level of a toddler. Here's Jeff reading a note that he wrote to his daughter. Dear Julia, I'm writing you this note on March the 7th, 2018. Today is the day that you turn 15 years old. It's an interesting day for me and for mom, but it's another day for you. You're not like other kids, my sweet. You've never made a big deal of your birthday. You've never asked us for any type of a special gift. Not for your birthday, not for Hanukkah, not for Christmas. You've treated each and every day in the same way. Mom will wake you up and you'll have a smile on your face when you see her. She'll play some of your music and you'll smile even more. You may laugh or giggle or squeal, but there will not be any words. You won't complain about having to go to school. You won't be happy to hear that it is a snow day. You won't celebrate the fact that today is 15 years since you were born. Most 15-year-old girls would be thinking about clothing, college, or a car. By 15, many dads have already had to warn their daughters about some dopey boy. But today, you'll watch your favorite episode of Jack's Big Music Show, enjoy your cereal, and be on the lookout for cookies wherever you can find them. Mom and I know that you will be with us as long as we're alive. But we worry about what happens after we're gone. You have two wonderful brothers, and I pray every day that we have raised them well enough to know that they will need to look after you someday. You may be our middle child, but you'll always be the baby. Even as you get older, according to the calendar, as mom told me yesterday, 
you are timeless. You'll always be my pipsqueak, despite the fact that the years are flying by. No, we're not exploring potential careers or making plans for your wedding. We're still hoping that we'll be able to help you move from diapers to the potty someday. You live today the same way you did when you were about 18 months old. You don't speak, and you only recognize a few words, but oh, the words that you know. Kisses and cookies. No matter how filled up you are, there's always room for a cookie or two. You don't understand when I ask you how your day was, but you become laser beam focused when you hear the crinkle of the wrapper on a package of something sweet. No matter how sweet that candy, it's still eclipsed by your genuinely sweet smile. So many people live their lives asking for things, demanding things, accumulating things. Most people never take the time to stop and savor a piece of cake or breathe deeply to appreciate a gentle breeze like you do. I hear people in this world use horrible, insulting language to describe kids like you, and I want to shake them and yell at them. Some mock disabled kiddos like you, and I feel like crying. You don't understand their words, but I do. Sometimes I really wish I did not. We never thought you would crawl, let alone walk, but you showed us. Your situation and challenges and disabilities have caused me to question my belief in God on some days and have served to strengthen it on others. You don't speak, but somehow you are able to brighten my days in ways that I never imagined. Without a single solitary word, you've made me a better man and touched countless people. Hearing you cry ties my stomach into knots, but your giggle is truly the happiest sound that I have ever heard. I know you'll never read this, nor would you understand this if I were to read it to you. So let me just say, kisses and cookies, Jules Bagools. I tell you today what I have told you on every March the 7th since 2003. Daddy loves you more than you will ever know. And thank you for that reading, Jeff. You've made me a better man, he wrote. Your giggle is the happiest sound I've ever heard. On Julia's unexpectedly learning how to walk, Jeff told the Boston Herald that, quote, it was one of the proudest days of my life, one of the happiest days of my life. But I also have to tell you, it's a terrifying situation because Julia is like a toddler. She has no real understanding of, oh, the stove is hot, or... I could fall here or trip you there. We're thrilled that she's trying to explore on her own a little bit, and we're terrified at the same time. And this is true for all of us parents, but even more so for Jeff and his bride. Jeff has said that it's tough to realize that he'll never get to embarrass Julia by dancing with her at her wedding. But, quote, she's the best thing that's ever happened to me. End quote. Last but not least, he said these words, quote, She's never spoken a word. She's never said a word to anybody. But she's touched more people in her 15 years on this earth than I ever have. Her joy is pure. To me, she's like the face of God. She's the essence of good, and she shares her joy with everybody. And to everyone out there who's in a similar situation, we share these thoughts. Share them to us. Share them with us. 
here at OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Jeff Katz's story, his daughter Julia's, here on Our American Stories. continue here on Our American Stories, and we broadcast out of a small college town called Oxford, Mississippi, about an hour south of Memphis, Tennessee. We're a bit spoiled in this part of the country when it comes to food, especially barbecue. Every once in a while, we like to get out of the studio and hit the road to track down some of the finest eats in the South. Here's Jesse. Abe's Barbecue in Clarksdale, Mississippi is one of those places that instantly takes you back to a time and place that stays original in some of the best ways possible. Pulled pork, tamales, fried chicken, an unforgettable, subtle barbecue sauce. It all started here in 1924, founded by Abraham Davis. I was hoping you'd ask me questions. I'll try to do that. I'm not as good as my dad. This is Pat Davis. Abraham's grandson and the current owner of Abe's Barbecue. Well, my grandfather was an immigrant from Lebanon. Came over around 1900. He was uh, 14 years old. And he came with his two younger siblings. That was it. In the bottom of a, a freighter, I guess, or with the cows and the goats. And in the bottom, he would go upstairs and get food, bring it down to his younger brother, sister. Then he somehow got to North Mississippi. I, now, I don't know how that happened. Um, as he got a little bit older, he started peddling to the uh, farm workers. On horseback, he'd take them linen and socks, dresses, just different things. That I'll, I've heard this from my grandmother and, and my father. In 1924, he started what name's barbecue. It was Delta Inn, but it was actually just a, a barbecue shack, a one-room deal on 4th Street and Florida. That was the intersection. Um, sometimes in the, I guess it was in the 40s, the high, that was the main drag that he was on. They, they moved it to where we are now. The main drag came sort of like a bypass. So he moved from the 4th Street location to this location here. And they built this building. This is the second building on this lot. It was built in 1959. So we've been in this building since 1959, on this lot since the mid-40s, from what I've heard. Located at the intersection of highways 49 and 61, this is one of several places in the state of Mississippi, believed by many 
to be Robert Johnson's legendary crossroads, which brings in tourists by the busload. People from all over the world. I mean, it really is amazing to see the folks that do come through. Clarksdale isn't just a tourist attraction. It's a real place, and so is Abe's Barbecue. Pat Davis was raised in this restaurant when his dad was in charge. I mean, he would leave me here with um, two guys back, I guess I would have been in the early 70s. I was 11, 12 years old, and, and we'd all, they'd run, they took care of me like, you know, uncles, and we'd run the place by ourselves. This was in the afternoon when Dad would go home and take a break. He would work in the morning and come back in the evening. It's not uncommon to see a customer loading up on a case of Abe's barbecue sauce. They sell it at the counter, and you can buy it online at abesbarbecue.com. It makes for some of the best pulled pork sandwiches you've ever had. We cook with um, pecan wood. Try to use pecan all the time, you know, like a hickory tree. And it's, it's hard to get hickory here. We do have a, we have a lot of pecans. We have pecan orchards, so it's easier to get pecan wood. Um, and I think that the difference, I mean, you could cook barbecue at your house over a smoker. I can cook it in my house over a smoker. It's, that's basically the same, you know. But the barbecue sauce is where it's different, I think. Our sauce is on a tangy side. It's not sweet. Um, I mean, people just tend to gravitate towards it. They like it. Well, most, most do. And I have people that don't like it. I had a guy come in a couple of months ago from Memphis, and he's never been through here, ate it. I didn't like it, didn't like it at all. So I didn't even, I just didn't charge him. So he left. Promise you, came back within like 10 days. He said, man, I don't know what it is. It hit me. He said a couple days ago, I got to get one more of those things. He said he came back and paid for the one he ate. I didn't charge him for it, too. Yeah, it was, it was a pretty cute story. Abe's also has some incredible tamales. It's a staple here in Mississippi from generations of Mexican labor. They made them and sold them in little push buggies. Daddy did tell me that, down on the city streets. And um, I guess maybe when they went home during the off-season, people missed them. So my grandfather apparently learned how to make it from someone, and he makes we make them now. Well, we don't actually make them now. We have someone make them for us, and we cook them here. We get them here. But we have made them uh, back in the mid-'70s to in about the middle-'80s. But it's, it was a job. And then... Um, the guy that was making them back here with us couldn't make them anymore, so we just found someone to make them for us. Mississippi being the clash of cultures that it sometimes is, the founder of Abe's did the right thing. A group of young black students were sent or were coming to restaurants, and if they came to Abe's and, and grandfather let them in. Most other restaurants did not let them in, and I think the other Lebanese family at Rest Haven let them in their restaurant. And Dad said there were the only two restaurants in town that weren't in a lawsuit. I think we get along really well in this town. You know, people may say, you know, it's a lot of racism. It, it, I mean, I'm sure you have your pockets of trouble. But overall, Clarksdale has a, a really good-hearted community, all of them, you know. I've moved off before. But it's not home. I mean, when you come back, it's still, I can go to Walmart, man. I, I just love to see people, hey, 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 hey. You know everybody. You know, you, or you know them or you know somebody in the family. Wintertime um, is, is good because we got a lot of hunters coming in and uh, family, families coming back for Thanksgiving with their families, you know, to be with their parents or grandparents. So the holidays are good. Hunting season's good. 
We have downtime when the farmers start getting in the field here in another week or two. Well, they would like to be there another week or two. We'll have rain for another week or two. But um, when the farmers start planting, we slow down because they're, they're kind of can't. And then it's slow, it gets better for us in the summertime because they're sort of laid back on the farming part. Then when they start harvesting, we get slow again. And we back to that regular cycle, hunting season starts back up and holidays start piling on, so we pick back up again. Yeah, business has been good. Uh, I think tourism has been a boom for this place. If it wasn't for tourism, I think it'd be a lot different. But that's what I'm seeing. I mean, I, you know, when it first started 20 years ago, I, mean, I said, why would people want to come here, you know? And, but they started, and they haven't stopped, and it's gotten more and more. Every year we have a, uh, well, we've had it for the last, I'm saying like 20 years, a Juke Joint Festival in April. And they send a group, four or five bands to, that play at different intervals outside. And we have people outside. Well, a couple of years ago it was raining. The first group went outside, started raining, they had to move inside. Well, the room that they came to was only, they had to put their band in, was, was probably 14 by 24. And it was in the, at the end of the restaurant. Well, they still had to, uh, for some reason, they couldn't uh, modify their amps. They had to leave everything on like it was outside. It was the loudest packed house I've ever seen in my life. I mean, people were standing up in this room. Everything was full, just stand-up room only. And, and the band was so loud, I don't know how they could even, the people, that, they, you couldn't get away from the noise because they, it was just too small of a, an area. And that's, that, that was unique when it happened to us. Uh, we don't have that much happen to like that. We had no other plan. There's no other way to, to let them play. So we had four bands playing in here at full throttle in this small room. Visit Abe's Barbecue in Clarksdale, Mississippi at the crossroads of U.S. 49 and 61 for Our American Stories. I'm Jesse Edwards. And great job as always, Jesse. And you were listening to Pat Davis. And he's the grandson of Abraham who started Abe's Barbecue, and it's an institution here in northern Mississippi. Everyone thinks it's the best. Well, actually, I do. And everybody here argues about what the best barbecue is. And, well, in this one, we don't do a lot of opinions on this show, but I'm right. And because it's Lebanese, probably, I have a little bit of bias. And by the way, Lebanese people found their way up and down the Mississippi River. So, too, did Jews. And that was to trade, to peddle, to make a buck and to call this great new place, America, their homes. Abe's Barbecue, the story of a family business, a multi-generational family business, here in the Mississippi Delta. This is Our American Story.
We return to Our American Stories, and our next one is about a writer, a writer you may know, and you may have even read back in high school or college, if you were lucky enough, Louisa May Alcott. And she's the writer of Little Woman. The book was her most popular, and it's been adapted twice as a silent film and four times with sound. It's also been made into six television shows. Here's Faith with Louisa May's story. In the mid-19th century, few people felt that a woman could be unmarried and still be happy and successful, even live a fulfilled life. Author Louisa May Alcott was what people would have called an old maid. Yet her life was filled with many successes and experiences, including her most successful book, Little Women, which she wrote in 1868 and 1869 in two separate volumes. After the success of the first volume, her publisher asked her to write the second. But we often read them as one. The book is a semi-autobiographical account of her childhood with her three sisters. It follows the life of the four March girls, Meg, Joe, Beth, and Amy, who live with their mother, Marmee. While their father is serving off as a pastor miles away from home involved in the American Civil War, Alcott identified with Joe, the stubborn, willful, fiery-tempered, but charmingly creative second eldest daughter. I was born with a boy's nature. And fought my fight with a boy's spirit and a boy's wrath. Never liked girls or knew many, except my sisters. The book is the girl's journey from childhood to womanhood and all that lies therein. It's a romantic child's fiction and a sentimental novel. Literary historian Sarah Elbert argues that within Little Women, we find the first representation of the all-American girl and her multiple aspects displayed in the differing March sisters. While Little Women was the most successful of Louisa May Alcott's writings, it was actually the book that she never wanted to write. Niles wants a girl's story. Lively, simple books are very much needed for girls. I said I'd try. Here's Susan Cheever, writer of Louisa May Alcott, a personal biography, talking about how Alcott came to write Little Women. It was the book that absolutely changed her life. It made her rich. It made her well-known after years and years of struggle. Uh, but she didn't want to write it. It was the last thing she wanted to do. She felt it went against all of her creative impulses. She had said to her editor, I'll think about it, and stalled and stalled and stalled. She didn't want to do it at all. And it, she ended up doing it, as we'll see, through a series of unfortunate accidents. And I think that often... Great things happen to us through a series of what seem to be unfortunate accidents. Uh, Louisa May Alcott was 36 years old when she wrote Little Women in 1868. She was the second of four daughters um, of an extraordinary family who lived in and around Boston. She was the daughter of Abba Alcott, who was an aristocrat who had married Bronson Alcott very late in life. He was one of these characters. He wore a cape and a big hat, and he carried a cane, and he had long blonde hair. Uh, but he had a lot of trouble making a living. Anyway, she was the daughter of Bronson Alcott, and Bronson Alcott, I believe, was an educational genius. He really was the first person in this country to start progressive education. And he did it because he believed, and he had no education, so he pulled this out of the sky. He believed that children were angels 
who came from heaven, as Wordsworth had written, trailing clouds of glory. Now, most people in the 1840s believed that children were vipers who had to be forcefully civilized before they could join us, you know, big people. Bronson believed the opposite. He believed that adults could learn from children. He gave Louisa one great thing, which was the community in which she grew up. His friends were Emerson and Thoreau and Hawthorne and all kinds of people like that. So as a girl, she was taught by Thoreau. She used Emerson's library right away. And she grew up in this extraordinary progressive intellectual community as the daughter of a man who was very respected in that community. Um, Bronson was fascinated by children, just fascinated. He wasn't just an educator. He was a kind of student of children. But she drove him a little bit crazy, and she was definitely the family rebel. And there was a lot of disappointment in in her, both from her father and her mother. Now, Bronson, this brilliant educator and this friend of the brilliant transcendentalists, had one, he had two big problems. One was he couldn't hang on to money, and the other was that he couldn't write. He was one of the world's worst writers. Uh, one critic said that reading Bronson Alcott was like watching a train go by with 15 boxcars and one passenger. Louisa decided that she had to make money for the family and that she would do it by writing. Louisa did everything she could get paid for. She was a seamstress, she was a teacher, she was a governess, she was a companion. So she decided to take this essay she had written to, to the great editor of, of the time, James T. Fields. And she knew James T. Fields through her father. James T. Fields was Hawthorne's editor. James T. Fields was De Quincey's editor. James T. Fields was the man, right? So she takes her essay and she walks across Boston. They're living on Pinckney Street. And uh, here's what happens. She passed the Boston Common and turned into the bustling center of downtown. There, the spire of the Old South Church presided like a disapproving Puritan dowager over the teeming business of the new Boston. There was the bookshop next to Mrs. Abner's coffee house, where Fields took authors and colleagues for coffee and hot buns. There was the gorgeous palace of the music hall, where Louisa had recently gone to hear Theodore Parker demand equality for women. Now Louisa headed for the second floor of the old corner bookshop, where Fields had his office behind a green curtain that separated him from his young assistant Thomas Niles and the piles of manuscripts he had yet to read. She handed him the manuscript, her first and last memoir essay, How I Went Out to Service. He motioned her to sit and began to read it. She could hear the noise of Thomas Niles' pen scratching and the chatter in the bookstore downstairs. Finally, the great James T. Fields looked up at her and delivered the verdict she would remember for a long time. Stick to your teaching, Miss Alcott. You can't write. That was not a good moment. Um, yet, I think it was the moment at which Louisa May Alcott became a writer. And I think that if you want to be a writer, you take criticism in and you're hurt, of course, and devastated, of course, but you almost immediately turn it around and go, well, I'll show them. And it's clearly what happened with Louisa Alcott and James T. Fields. James T. Fields was trying to be nice. He tried to help her in her teaching career. He loaned her $40 to help her start a school with her sister. But she took that in in a very interesting way. However, Louisa's career did not turn around at that point, but she decided that she would show James T. Fields and the rest of the world by writing a big, serious novel. 
a novel that would please her friend Emerson, a novel that would impress her father, a novel which she called Moods. And probably you haven't read it. Maybe you haven't even heard of it. I, I don't think it's such a successful novel, and neither did anybody else, Wh- which was hard for her because she loved that novel. Anyway, she got one review which was particularly painful in the North American Review uh, from a guy who said... Um, The two most striking facts with regard to moods are the author's ignorance of human nature and her self-confidence in spite of that ignorance. So that wasn't good, and her writing career was not looking good. And then their entire lives came to a halt with the beginning of the Civil War. And when we come back, more of this extraordinary story of perseverance, and my goodness, so much more, the story of Louisa May Alcott continues here on Our American Stories. the story of Louisa May Alcott, the writer of Little Woman. Author Susan Cheever has been telling us her story, and Susan Cheever wrote the book Louisa May Alcott, a personal biography. We left off with Alcott's writing career not seeming very promising, but it all came to a stop when the Civil War began. And Louisa and everyone in Concord and everyone in Cambridge um, took it very hard. It, 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 of course, was a nightmare. Nobody thought it was going to happen. Louisa didn't know what to do. She was very involved with abolition. Concord had been a stop on the Underground Railroad. She had seen the whole thing. So she ended up enlisting as a Civil War nurse. And it was she was one of the first female nurses in this country. It, it was thought that nurses had to be men because they had to handle naked bodies, etc., 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 but a woman named Dorothy Dix had started, had convinced the War Department to start a corps of female nurses as long as they were plain, unmarried, and over 30. And Louisa fit the bill. So she went down to Washington, D.C. Uh, to work in the Union Hotel Hospital. It had been a hotel. It was just barely remodeled into a hospital. And oddly enough, or amazingly enough, the second day she got there was the day that in Fredericksburg, Virginia... A few miles south, General Ambrose Burnside ordered 14 suicidal attacks of the Union Army against the entrenched Confederate Army. Here are historians Chris Mikowski and Donald Fance describing that fateful day. The majority of federal troops at this point are not very optimistic about their chances. They recognize how strong that position is the Confederates have atop Marie's Heights. Union troops have to charge across several hundred yards of open ground just to reach the Confederate position. 
Once there, they're going to encounter Confederates who were posted very strongly in massed ranks behind a stone wall. If you survived all that, then you had the Confederate artillery, which was on the high ground behind the stone wall. Those guns were able to fire down over the heads of their own men and scour the ground in front of them. So any way you look at it, it was a killing ground. The day at Fredericksburg was one of the worst battles of the war. The ground was carpeted with the Union dead. And the next morning, Louisa May Alcott looked out the window of the Union Hotel Hospital and she saw carts as far as she could see. It looked to her like farmers coming to market, but of course it was carts filled with the dead and wounded men from Fredericksburg coming to her hospital. But she loved it. She was great at being a nurse. She knew how to talk to the men. She knew how to dig in. She learned how to wash wounds. She worked with the surgeons. She took the job of being up all night, of being the night nurse. She told them stories from Dickens. She wrote letters home when they were alive, and then when the men died, she wrote that very sad letter home saying that the man had died. She just, everything that she hated and that had troubled her fell away. There was no phoniness. There was no, you know, shame about being poor. It was life and death, and she knew what to do when the stakes were that high. And it was an extraordinary experience for her. And her letters home from the hospital are written in a completely different way than she had ever written before. It was in the Union Hotel Hospital that she found her voice. However, at the Union Hotel, she also fell sick with a lung infection, which in those days they gave you medicine that had mercury in it. So, this resulted in her growing sicker and sicker until her father had to come and get her and take her back to Concord. On the brink of death, her and her father put together the book Hospital Sketches, which in the end was the compilation of her letters home and the letters written to the families whose soldiers had fallen. During that time, she was not sure she would live herself. Louisa May Alcott, through the help and care of her family, overcame her illness. And being the hard worker that she was, she didn't wait long before trying to find work again. As she got better, she decided again that it was time to take her next step as a writer. So she went to Thomas Niles, who was her editor. He had been James T. Fields' assistant. And she said to him, you know, what, what should my next book be? And he said, well, he said, the only book I could really sell that you might write would be a book for young women. And she was horrified. She was insulted. She was like, do they ask Emerson to write a book for young women? I don't think so, right? What is this? I thought I was a serious writer. You know, all these years she had worked to be a serious writer. She had written all these stories under a pseudonym for Frank Leslie. She had written Moods. She had written hospital sketches, and they were still sort of trivializing her, she thought. But what happened was uh, Thomas Niles was an inspired bully. So he wrote Bronson Alcott a letter saying, um, you know, I'm a big fan of your writing, and I would love it if Louisa wrote this book for young women, and if she did, I think we could publish your next book as well. So that was a brilliant stroke. Bronson started in on Louisa, trying to get her to come home and write this book for young women. And eventually he got her. Um, she came home in January of, or went back to Concord. She had, she'd gone to Boston. She'd gotten herself a job. She was having a good time. She wasn't going to write the book for young women. But he got her back to Concord in January of 1868. 
for the purpose of writing this book for young women, which she didn't want to write. And so she stalled and stalled and stalled. She did everything but write the book for young women. January went by, February, March, April, May. Um, Finally, in May, she sat down just thinking, oh, you know, I might as well try it. She was totally discouraged about it. She thought she had written a little bit about four sisters who she called the pathetic family. So she just thought, well, I'll just write what happened, you know, which is, of course, not what she did, but that's how it felt to her. And, you know, within about three weeks, she had finished the first part of Little Women. She didn't like it very much. Thomas Niles didn't think it was too great either. Um, Thomas Niles had a niece who got hold of the manuscript and was up all night. But it's the minute, almost the minute Thomas Niles published the first part of Little Women in November... Uh, the outpouring of letters and admiration was huge. And by Christmas, Louisa May Alcott was one of the best-known writers in the world and one of the wealthiest. So it was really a kind of amazing overnight success uh, because of what happened with, with Little Women, that, which she didn't want to write. So after the huge success of Little Women, a letter to James T. Fields. I remember he had lent her money. Dear Mr. Fields, once upon a time you lent me $40, kindly saying that I might return them when I had made a pot of gold. As the miracle has been unexpectedly wrought, I wish to fulfill my part of the bargain and herewith repay my debt with many thanks. Very truly yours, L.M. Alcott. So, um, she got her own back. The same man who told her to stick to her teaching, Miss Alcott, you can't write. She got to prove wrong. Little Women wasn't necessarily the book she wanted to write. But in the end, what was its impact on others? And, ultimately, on herself. She wrote the first part, she turned it in, he didn't like it much, he published it, the outpouring was huge. And then he said to her, okay, write the second part. And then they both realized that they had a tiger by the tail. And then, God bless him, he said to her, I can give you a flat fee or you can take a percentage, but if I were you, I would take the percentage. So she did. Neither of them realized what she had done. It's sort of fascinating. And I don't think that's that unusual, I have to say. I think writers often don't know when they've done their best work. The beauty and intrigue of this book is the perspective that Alcott brings. She wrote reflectively on her own life. In one chapter in particular, we find Jo at the age of 25, feeling old and like she has nothing to show for it. She's been focused on her career rather than finding a husband. And in this moment, the narrator detours from the story. To the girl in the 19th century, growing up and not finding a husband could feel like the end of the world. Little women became a memoir of sorts. So although Alcott was quite happy and successful, she still had reflections from her spinsterhood. It's interesting to contrast her life with the pity she feels for old maids in the following passage. Quote, At 25, girls begin to talk about being old maids, but secretly resolve that they never will be. At 30, they say nothing about it, but quietly accept the fact, and, if sensible, console themselves by remembering that they have 20 more useful happy years in which they may be learning to grow old gracefully. Don't laugh at the spinsters, dear girls, for often very tender, tragic romances are hidden away in the hearts that beat so quietly under the sober gowns 
and many silent sacrifices of youth, health, ambition, love itself, make the faded faces beautiful in God's sight. Even the sad, sour sisters should be kindly dealt with because they have missed the sweetest part of life, if for no other reason. In looking at them with compassion, not contempt, girls in their bloom should remember that they too may miss the blossom time, that rosy cheeks don't last forever, that silver threads will come in that bonny brown hair, and that by and by, kindness and respect will be as sweet as love and admiration now. I'm Faith Garcia, and this is Our American Stories. And great job as always, Faith. And what a story it is, Louisa May Alcott's story. And you can hear so much of what we do on the arts and literature in particular. Go to ouramericannetwork.org. We've done stories about Melville, about Hemingway, Fitzgerald, with a reading from The Great Gatsby. Louisa May Alcott's story, in a sense, the story of the 19th century and the beginning of the women's movement in a very real and smart and bold way. All of that here on Our American Stories.